welcome to this episode of Tez Podagogy. My guests today are Mark Brenchley, an Associate Research Fellow at the Centre for Research and Writing at the University of Exeter, and Ian Cushing, who is a Teaching Fellow in English Linguistics at the University College London. This week's topic is to do with the feature uh, these gentlemen have written for Tez uh, this, uh, in the 8th of um, December edition. And it's about grammar, and we've pin- you two have pinpointed ten things every teacher should know about grammar, which is not going to be controversial at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you start it by addressing that fact that it is a contentious topic, mm. and that it is something that people are either often scared of, or people mm. have incredibly entrenched views on. Did that make you know you, you're both working in schools re- or visiting schools regularly, looking at grammar? Mm. Is that an even split? You know, are most teachers scared of it? Are most teachers have entrenched views on it? I think, um, I, th- I think, uh, c- certainly in my experience, a lot of the teachers that I speak to um, are very anxious about it. Mm. Yeah, and very, very fearful about grammar. And as soon as you mention the word grammar, you can see them physically, you know, <laughs> <laughs> stiffen up because because they just don't uh, like the thought of thinking or talking about grammar. Mm. And um, I think I think from the beginning, I certainly want to say that we're not we're not blaming teachers for that sense of fear at all. Um, if you consider where the majority of English teachers have come from, mm. so a literature background where they've had very little or or no training in in formal linguistics or formal grammar whatsoever, it's no surprise that they don't know much about grammar, mm. and therefore it's no surprise that they hold a, a sense of fear about grammar. Um, and I think that I think that, that that sense of fear exists absolutely and, and when the curriculum changed back in 2013 2014 mm. to an increased emphasis on grammar that f- that fear was only perpetuated because mm-hmm. what the government did when they when they changed the curriculum they didn't put training in place to support and to support teachers with the change in curriculum uh, and the change in knowledge of grammar that they needed to have and so that fear just became increased and Certainly, with with my work, and, and I imagine with your work with teachers, Mark, is that if you if you provide teachers with a bit of training and a bit of subject knowledge about grammar, then you see that fear begin to decrease. And actually, if you give teachers some subject knowledge and some some really useful and meaningful tools for for doing things with grammar, then suddenly grammar isn't this thing to be feared, but it's something to be. To, to, it's something that that can be used to do things with, and it's something that can be used to have fun with things with have, have fun with text in the classroom so yeah I mean that was so sort of in a way I guess point 10 is probably the, the one we kind of want to highlight which is the fact that we do see a lot of kind of lack of confidence in teachers so I think actually when I do CPDs I feel very guilty if I sit on the table with teachers because if they find out I have a grammar background nobody wants to answer a question that's kind of thrown out because <laughs> they automatically <laughs> kind of think they'll be called out or something but I think everything about my experience and Ian's experience actually mm. teaches are very good at getting the kind of core of grammatical concepts yeah but there's a, a lack of confidence, a completely understandable lack of confidence, um, given the fact they've been given no background on it and given how much emphasis is, is put on it in the national curriculum, that they would feel kind of confident, but it's not necessary. Um, yeah, sure. They get to grips with it. And there's, there's also this kind of weird preconception about grammar being kind of very clear rights and wrongs. So they, there's a concept set up for them where if they're asked a question, is they will either be 100% right or 100% wrong. Mm. But actually most professional grammarians will kind of say, well, this is actually, it's actually much more nuanced than that. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I, I, my work, what I do is a lot of kind of coding of text. So I literally go through and I, I actually code, mark up text, trying to identify certain things. 
it's often very hard to try and work out what a feature is in a particular text. And mm. I have a lot of grammar knowledge, and that's just th that is how grammar is. You shouldn't expect, and you shouldn't be made to expect that there will always be hundred percent right mm. wrong answers. Mm. I think that's an interesting point you make right at the start of the feature is that when we're talking about grammar in the school context, we're often talking about standard English, mm. and that grammars <coughs> exist. You know, we can't see grammar as a as a single entity that is RP. You know, in the old mm. in the old way. Mm. Um, when you're looking at, say, a, a dialect and the grammar that exists within that, or um, you know, regional varieties in grammar, you you make the point that they're all equally valid, if mm, you like. Absolutely, yeah. I think the really important thing to foreground is the idea that that dialects and, and, and regional variations in different forms of a language and different forms of a grammar are by no means ungrammatical. They might be, uh, they might diverge from a so-called perceived standard or a, or a reference point as such, which we normally call a standard English, uh, but that doesn't mean that they're somehow um, somehow uh, less less good as such mm. uh, as the standard as, as the uh, as the standard form of the language. It certainly doesn't mean that they're ungrammatical forms of the language. And I think certainly when I when I speak to teachers and when, when I think and when I talk about grammar, I really try and avoid those terms correct and incorrect. Mm. Because I think what those terms do, they just feed into that discourse that grammar is some, somehow some kind of a rule book. And as soon as you start thinking of notions of correctness and incorrectness and of rule books, that's when you start to get teachers thinking about notions of things being right or wrong, potential punishments for getting things wrong or using language in certain ways or, or choosing to use a, um, a local dialect as opposed to, 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 to standard English, for example. And I think that discourse about right and wrong is, is quite dangerous mm -hmm. because what it does, it sets up a hierarchy where you have a form of a language that is somehow seen as better than another, than another form of a language. And languages aren't like that and, 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 local, and, and forms of a language are certainly not like that. So instead of ideas about correctness and incorrectness, we like to think about grammar as a, uh, as a sense of, on a scale of appropriateness. Mm -hmm. And linguists often use the term register to account for that. And what appropriateness and what register means is that all language operates within a context. And it's the context that, that drives um, and shapes the way that language is used. So what that means is that different contexts might yield different, uh, different appropriate choices within your language or within the, the language that you choose to use. That doesn't mean that they're incorrect or, or, or correct as such, it just means that they're more or, or less appropriate for the situation of use as such. Would that include sort of if, you, if someone wanted to do a piece of creative writing, in, whether it's in year six or year ten, and they are writing and uh, perhaps they write in a dialect in, 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 in a period of speech in, in the piece. <coughs> Would you as a teacher want to sort of recommend the use of the, the sort of native grammar to that dialect? Would that be, or you know, would you want to see awards for a child understanding that, that transfer from the standard English to a sort of dialectical grammar? Yeah, I, th I, think, I, th I think a teacher that recognises the fact that children can choose, can, can make very conscious choices about their language mm. is a thing to be celebrated. And if, it, and if somebody chooses to write in a non-standard form as opposed to a standard form as such, given the context in which they're writing, then to me that shows a really explicit knowledge about language that's used purposefully to create uh, different effects within the minds of the readers that the text is being addressed to. So. And we talked before about a little bit about the, the way the national curriculum presents grammar. 
uh, and Mark, you said it sort of front-loaded it, mm. was the phrase you used. Do you think that, you know, you're, you talked a lot about the diversity of grammar, do you think the way the national curriculum is presenting grammar, or perhaps the way teachers and schools are interpreting the national curriculum on grammar, is leading to a sort of mono view of it? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, it's certainly true that the... I mean, the national curriculum is kind of, it's quite, with grammar, it's quite a weirdly kind of schizophrenic document. Because um, if you read through the national curriculum, it will make statements about, um, you know, um, developing grammar can, will, 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 a grammar focus will kind of lead to kind of um, better use of language. Um, and actually, the, re the, the research in, that we've done at Exeter suggests that's in fact the case, provided you do it in a very kind of specific way. But at the same time, um, you have the way that the kind of spelling and grammar test emphasizes grammar, which is a very much kind of right-wrong answer, and a very simplistic model of that. I mean, even if you look at it just on a formal basis, you know, someone who does grammar for a living, it's just a very tedious, very boring, and doesn't really assess grammar knowledge in any kind of interesting way at, at all. <coughs> um, that actually kind of cuts against that idea of kind of um, giving students a grammar focus as a way of kind of helping them improve their writing. But um, at the same time, you have technical terms that have been sort of dropped on teachers without the resources mm -hmm. and effort <coughs> and time put mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. to allow teachers to get their heads around that and to be comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that basically it, it, it's set up to be very kind of counterproductive. So it, you know, students are, you know, you can see teachers being kind of quite paranoid in the classroom if a student pushes back on something that they haven't got that kind of comfort of the background knowledge to be able to kind of deal with it. I mean we use, we use an example in the cafe just now, kind of if you teach ambient pentameter, some kid in the classroom will, will come back and say, well, that line doesn't have a pentameter, but the teachers have the confidence and subject knowledge to be able to <coughs> kind of deal with that pushback. Mm. Mm. Whereas the way it's front-loaded in the kind of curriculum, without that kind of grounding, without kind of being properly contextualized, um, you just have this kind of technical term that isn't really that well explained, and the technical term by itself doesn't really give you a kind of mm. understanding of that feature. Mm. That any kind of pushback on it means that, that you know, that conversation will kind of be shut down. Are we, I mean, you guys are, are linguists. Uh, what, what level of, do you think that year six grammar, you know, key stage two grammar is at? I mean, if we go back 20 years, where, where would that be positioned in the educational journey, you know, that, that level of technical knowledge? Was it even, ex was it even there in any stage of um, statutory schooling at that age? You would have, I mean, you would have had, um, back in the day, as they say, um, you would have had sort of grammar teaching. That really kind of went out in the kind of 60s and 70s. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, as I said, it's often conceptualised in terms of well, the hippies came in and kind of. But that actually, the consistent research evidence shows, if you do a traditional way of teaching grammar, which is very much not what we do at Exeter, um, and not what we recommend doing at Exeter, um, it will have basically no impact on kind of students' writing. And that, if you think about it, that makes complete sense because simply knowing what a noun phrase is, simply being able to label a noun phrase in the text, that that why would that automatic connect through to be able to do anything? With it, mm. um, and you can often see that I'm actually, you know, most professional grammarians aren't very good writers. I mean, they can give you a very sophisticated, very nice analysis of a structure and so on, mm. um, but you know, it doesn't connect through to kind of style because you have this kind of, you know, this is an X, you know, identify all the X's in the text, or even kind of, you know, produce a text with 40% of feature X, um, but that's not connected through in any way to the kind of quality of writing. And this goes back to kind of what we were saying about kind of appropriateness and the kind of commutative context. It's that context that really drives the features mm. that you use, and you can't really have any sense of um, how grammar can be used effectively unless you have an appreciation of that context and how those kind of forms um, relate to each other. So again, if you go back to the kind of standard English thing, um, you know, 
it would be, you know, it'd be reasonable for students to kind of know that in certain contexts, if they're writing an academic essay, they'll probably expect it to use kind of features of standard English, mm -hmm. and a dialectical choice would be frowned on. I mean, that, that's problematic for that to be kind of frowned on, but it's the fact that, that kind of community context, the standard English is kind of more appropriate, whereas, you know, in a piece of literature, it, it's absolutely fine. I mean, we, we yeah. can name any kind of, you know, any number of novels which don't use standard English, and even consciously don't use standard English, and they're, you know, they're, they're front and centre in, in the national curriculum. Sure. I mean, of Mice and Men, sure. for example. Sure. I mean, that's a fantastic piece of literature for most people. That's not standard British English. I think there's a really nice piece, play, uh, bit in the feature where you break down um, Morris Sendak's Where the Wild Things Are. Mm. Mm. And you, I think you really demonstrate in that passage where the power of grammar in the interpretation of a text and how democratic the interpretation can be from the same set of rules, if you want to call it rules, but rather not, but <laughs> how, you, how you interpret that, that, that brief passage. Do you think, because of the way it's sometimes taught in isolation as, as a checklist of terminology, do you think that interpretive element of grammar and the, the power of grammar to aid understanding of concepts, not just understanding of how the construct of the sentence or the passage, but actually understand the concept, because mm. that's what you show in that Morris Sandek bit. <coughs> is that emphasised enough? Is that something on your respective research product projects yeah. you try and... I think that's push? a good question. I think, um, I, think that, I think that question really comes back to grammar pedagogy, so, that, so, so, so the effective ways of teaching grammar. I think for me the important thing to realise is that grammar is just one part of the English curriculum. Mm. We, not, none of us would sit here and say that teachers, sh teachers, teachers should sit there and teach grammar and only grammar all day and it should be the most important thing on their agenda in their curriculum. That is definitely not what we're saying. But it is an important part of it nonetheless. But it's part of an English curriculum where kids should be taught to read for meaning, where they should be taught to enjoy literature, where they should enjoy the sensation of being transported to fictional worlds, etc., where they should enjoy the sensation of, of the conceptual things that reading does for them. Mm. Now, for me, grammar does that. An understanding of what of, of, of how those concepts happen, um, you, you can you can trace that back to the grammar and, and, and the words on the page itself. So, certainly, the approach that we take at UCL, so the teachers, some of the teachers that I teach, where we look at how to teach grammar in context. Mm. What we do is that we start with the bigger concepts as such. And those bigger concepts might include, okay, let's look at a text and let's consider some very basic interpretations of that text. So for example, how does this text make you think about this certain character? Or what kinds of images in your mind does this piece of writing create for you? And once we've discussed those things and we've enjoyed the text on that level, We'll then go back to the text and we'll say, okay, now how can we account for those feelings and those reactions to a piece of uh, literary fiction based on the grammatical properties of the text? And to me, that is good grammar teaching, making a, con making a connection between readerly effects, between, uh, between feelings of literature and, and reader responses to literature and, and the grammatical properties of the text. So showing how they construct it, like... Um, pulling apart the magic of it, you know, this yeah, is exactly. an accidental. Yeah, exactly. This is this is yeah. something that the writer's thought about. Whether sure. he's called it a, uh, whether he's broken it down to gra grammatical terms himself, sure. there is grammar going on. Yeah. I mean, it's important to actually. I mean, um, we, we're not saying that kind of writers do this explicitly. Mm. Um, often it's kind of intuitive, and, and writers, uh, as much because they spent most of their lives kind of doing it, they have a huge level of kind of intuitive knowledge. What we're sort of saying giving a grammar focus in a specific way, so you're connecting it to the meaning, um, that can kind of bring that to light. 
um, for, for, for kind of students. So it's not mm. kind of it's not ruining the magic. It's not kind of destroying. It, it's kind of saying, this is how the magic works. Mm. Now you go and play. Yeah, yeah. you can t you can kind of toy with these things. Mm. Um, and it is that uh, part of what we kind of want to do a little bit with with the article, and hopefully that will kind of come across, is that grammar is really much more than this kind of very restrictive notion of kind of correctness, and it's very restrictive and, and, and often actually kind of false notion about standard English. People often make claims about standard English that are just simply kind of not true. Yeah. Um, or even they'll kind of want to make standard English much more regular than it is. Because in fact, that a standard English can actually be much more irregular um, than okay. dialects. I mean, yeah. so you kind of, they're weird things you look at standard English and think, that's just a bit rubbish. Who, <laughs> who designed it that way? Yeah. Um, but to kind of say that grammar is much more than this. So any, any piece of language you produce, whether you're speaking, whether you're writing, whether you're speaking in formal context and informal context, whether you're writing an article for um, TES, whether you're um, you know, working on the Great American Module, there will be a grammatical basis to that text because that, that defines how those kind of words are kind of put together. Mm. Um, and that will be intimately connected to the kind of context and the kind of writing you're producing. Um, and those features will really vary in quite intimate ways. And we know this from kind of um, uh, adult language. Um, if you take a kind of different kind of writing and put them together, they will have a very different kind of grammatical pattern. Um, and that's what good grammar is, really. Mm. It's about that kind of flexibility <coughs> and seeing mm. it as a kind of commutative um, resource. Mm. Um, and in fact, that's kind of the project I'm working on at the moment. That's what we're trying to kind of explore a little bit because um, we don't really have much of a sense of kind of how students develop that kind of good grammar, that flexibility, how they manipulate it. Um, mm. And actually, I mean, they will, even if you don't give them grammar teaching, they will do a lot of that development by themselves. Mm. There's no question about about that. Um, but getting a sense of how students develop that, um, you can kind of really see just kind of how, how kind of sophisticated, how nuanced, and how kind of grounded in meaning it is, really. Mm. And it's the meaning that kind of drives it. I think, again, that goes back to the kind of problem the way that the national curriculum's on, it's kind of front-loaded. Mm. So all you can see are these kind of arbitrary-seeming features. Do you find in your, in your work that uh, children have a natural idea of or natural ear if you like for grammar because of reading they've done so the more you read the more natural ear you get for it and how does that sort of correspond when you then bring formal uh, ideas on top of that are they complementary does sometimes that clash because you you know these children think well how do these match it would entirely <laughs> depend how it's done and, and it's worth kind of pointing out that even though um, and I think that the research actually really does kind of show this that kind of good grammar teaching done in a certain way can really have a big impact there are still lots of open questions as to how students develop that knowledge, mm. at what point you kind of introduce forms. And, and again, the, the curriculum is quite weird. It kind of the, the statutory kind of appendix where they have to learn a certain feature at a certain point. I mm. don't understand that at all. Yeah. I don't understand why that's, I don't understand why, you know, year two they have to be doing this. That doesn't seem to, you know, and it could be that actually, you know, this worth making it much more explicit, much more towards kind of the later end of primary school, mm. and secondary school. Um, but it depends entirely kind of how you do it. Um, and we, you couldn't even say, even to say that kind of texts have a grammatical basis, it doesn't mean you can have an interesting discussion about a grammar feature in every text. Mm. I mean, you know, that just, that's just not kind of how it works. Um, you can't force a grammar feature. And again, this is kind of critical from the approach we have at Exeter is, if you have a text you want to teach, have a look at it. You might see a grammar feature there that's really interesting and you really want to use because it's critical to how that's done in the text. Mm. But you wouldn't necessarily say, right, today I'm teaching preposition phrases, so I'm going to pick this text and I'm going to force the kids mm. to look at preposition. Because they might not have been, I mean, they will be contributing to the meaning of the text, but not necessarily in a particularly interesting way. Yeah. And not in a way that kids would even kind of read really about, because they already know. <coughs> and also, if you, if you begin a grammar lesson 
by showing kids a text and say, okay, go and find me all the preposition phrases in this text, and then let's talk about what potential effects those things might have. Mm. You as a teacher, you're then signaling to the kids and you're foregrounding the idea that somehow prepositional phrases are important. Mm. Whereas if you read for meaning and read for pleasure and read for enjoyment first, and then go back to the grammar, it might be that some kids found some things much more interesting to say than prepositional phrases or other aspects of grammar which they found themselves. So certainly the pedagogy that we, were that we would recommend is not one that leads with the grammar. It's not one that says, okay, I found some things that I think are important, I want you to go and find them and then try and guess what's in my head, why I've <laughs> considered them to be important. You find some things that you think are important let's talk about why they are, and then we'll think about the grammatical structures behind what's making them important to you as a reader. And, and how does that work when you move it to writing? So you're looking at moving grammar to writing. So the pedagogy yeah. of sort of interpretive frameworks, mm. this is how we interpret text, we find the meaning, and then we, we deconstruct it basically into yeah. the grammar parts. If you're doing it, you know, writing to be grammatically correct, or, or maybe that concept in itself is, is, is wrong, you shouldn't <laughs> write to be grammatically correct, but. How, how does the pedagogy of sort of writing and grammar match? You start with the kind of writing you want to do. You don't front load these kind of explanations. So it's not t the students can come back and say, a noun phrase is blah, 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 <coughs> blah, 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 yeah. well, tick. It's not that. Mm. We say don't fudge the definitions because th that is really problematic. These kind of old, the kind of old school definitions, saying kind of verbs are doing words and so on, that, that's really helpful. They're actually very misleading. So mm. you don't fudge the definition. Mm. But you don't overemphasize this either. Really, it's about having an authentic text to hand, something that has actually been on. So some, a real person has kind of come out and produced this, looking at the kind of features in there and seeing what they're kind of doing in there. So look at those examples, plenty of examples, making sure students can at least kind of um, just identify noun phrases. And actually, Debbie's coming out with some research recently, which kind of looked at kind of students' conceptualization of, of grammar. And some of that does kind of show is that if you kind of give them a grammar focus in the classroom in our way, they can transfer that into their writing but they won't necessarily be able to articulate it either. It's so Deborah Meyer, we should yeah, say. It is Deborah Meyer, yeah. yeah. And I should also highlight colleagues, Sue Jones, um, Annabelle Watson, Ruth Newman, um, Helen Lyons, and a lot of kind of fabulous, kind of really <coughs> rigorous kind of work mm. on this. To me, it's, um, to me, it's the metaphors and it's, it, that people have in terms of what they think writing and what grammar is. <coughs> so if you're a teacher and you present the idea that writing is craft um, and that language is a piece of plasticine, which I think is Debbie's metaphor, actually, um, yeah. <coughs> or that grammar is a resource or a pool of resources or grammar is a tool rather than uh, writing is a series of checklist points that you have to <laughs> complete or writing is a, a series of hoops that you have to jump through then it moves away from the idea that writing and language is a system of constraints and it moves it much more towards the idea that writing is about choice it's about freedom um, and it's about getting things done with language um, to achieve particular effects and it's about making making appropriate choices to do whatever you want to do with your language. So not necessarily saying go and write this sentence with these features but saying no, look, absolutely look how no, no. look how um, I don't know <coughs> uh, a certain author has used certain techniques do you like those techniques this is how they've done them if you'd like to recreate yeah. them in any way yeah I mean, sure you would sure. work with I mean if you're if you're highlighting a specific feature in text you would want the students to kind of experiment with them and stuff and so on but mm. it's about getting the students to explore what those things might be doing. So it's very open interpretive because we all know we have very different kind of interpretation of text. Mm. It's exploring the richness of kind of what we're doing, giving students ownership of it and allowing them to kind of play with it themselves. It's not, so you, you are emphasising a particular form in a particular context and what it's doing and inviting that kind of rich discussion. 
but it's not saying, now you need to go away and you need to produce a paragraph which has at least three noun phrases with at least kind of three sequence of adjectives. <laughs> one must be post, you know, one must be um, uh, uh, attributive, one must be predicative. That's that, that. That's the really wrong way to kind of do grammar. It's kind of it's confusing, almost kind of an explicit model of grammar with kind of what we mm. think kind of good grammar is. Really. Mm. Good grammar is not being able to come back and say that's a noun phrase, mm. a noun phrase is structure defined by this. There is a peripheral modifier, there is a pre-modifier, there are determiners, there are post-modifiers. It's about kind of students being able to kind of be given a bit more awareness of kind of this other, the metaphor like is kind of vein of meaning. Mm. Right? You kind of, mm. you, you show students kind of other vein of meaning that they can start manipulating. And the proof of the pudding is then being able to kind of work that into their writing. And it may well be, and some of the, the research that Debbie's given probably shortly will suggest that the fact, you know, they can take the, the kind of um, grammar focus on board but they won't necessarily be able to articulate it. Yeah. So again, this goes back to this kind of, this kind of SPAG model of, you know, the, even if you kind of want to assess it, it's not kind of, you then go back and ask a student, what's a noun phrase? I mean, if you want them to become grammarians, that's a reasonable question, and that's yeah. kind of an open discussion to have about it. But if your focus is on kind of writing, it's kind of, you know, can, can they actually use this stuff in context? Mm. And yet, can they mm. articulate why those choices were made? They don't need to be able to say it's a noun phrase because X and Y. They just need to get someone to be able to kind of point it out and to have some sense that they kind of take an ownership of that form in that context and use it for kind of a purpose and recognizing that kind of open end of it. And even, you know, that may lead to mistakes. I mean, mm. there's the kind of other thing is, I, I remember this when I, when I did my kind of um, master linguistics, and we introduced kind of all these features, um, none of which is in the curriculum, and it's all kind of like, you know, there's a whole other kind of like te technical stuff, the difference between raising control verbs. It's really confusing, and you start second-guessing yourself, and you start mm. looking at something you're writing, and you sit there thinking, is that a raising verb, is that a control verb? And it, it Interesting stuff can have complex effects. It can mess with kind of students' writing, and, and when they're developing it, you know, it will take them time to kind of work on and develop their own kind of sense of mastery. Mm. It's not a linear thing. They may be backwards and forwards, um, and that's what we kind of expect of it. But again, this kind of spag thing seems to be kind of, well, by year two they will have understood this concept. Tick, they've got it. Move on. That's not really. That's not really kind of how grammar. You highlight in the piece as well that those sort of rules aren't actually rules <laughs> in the sense that grammarians will disagree about yeah. certain terminologies yeah. and, and you highlight a couple of examples. In an ideal world, would, would, the, would grammar be presented in that way? This, isn't, this mm. is not a, you know, this is so. not a stone tablet of, of things grammar's, you have to gr by. Grammar, grammar's fuzzy. It's not fixed. Grammar's a very fuzzy system. It's not, it doesn't fall neatly into uh, neatly defined containers. Uh, language, <laughs> language is very messy and linguists have developed grammar in order to try and slot it into these containers as such, but the boundaries between those containers are very fuzzy. Mm. So I was, teaching, um, I was teaching teachers about grammar on Friday, for example, and we were talking about the idea of nouny nouns, okay. the idea that you can have a very good example of a noun, for example, chair or table, something that's tangible, you can, you can see it, um, it's physical. It has the general structural properties that a noun has. It can follow a determiner, for example. It can form the head of a noun phrase, etc. And then we talked about less good examples of nouns, so less nouny nouns. So, for example, the word destruction is a very abstract noun. It's not tangible. It seems to imply some kind of process as such. So we might normally think of a process being assigned to uh, a verb, for example. So it would be a much more peripheral member of the noun category. Mm. So it would fall on the kind of border as such. The word swimming, for example, where well you can use that as a noun. Swimming is my favourite sport. But lots of people would 
constantly swimming to be again some kind of process. So it kind of falls on that border between noun and verb as such. And you that's can see how teachers get scared of it. Sure, because a absolutely. Even yeah. just in that small example, the scope for being vulnerable in talking about yes, yeah. grammar is huge. That's right. And that's where that discourse of fear comes from, I think. And that's why it's completely understandable. And that's why that we <laughs> the work that we do both at Exeter and at UCL um, and in, and in my, my doctoral research at Aston is all about trying to help teachers with what is an incredibly difficult subject but with a little bit of subject knowledge you can do an awful lot with um, and so we, we, we really want to be very very positive about grammar and actually the fuzzy nature of grammar can actually be a really really fun thing to teach so take for example the notion of nouny nouns or adjective adjectives you know kids love talking Sounds about fun, doesn't it, it yeah, does yeah. it's great yeah. and, and kids really love that notion of fuzziness and grammar I think because it, it for them as well it moves it away from the idea of notions of rules and correctness and it moves it towards something that's much more flexible which is really what language is I guess I mean this, the flip side to the the vulnerable teachers on grammar is the 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 absolute ardent defenders of grammar um, and it sounds to me like if, if that person is is going around correcting people's grammar and going around the school and you know they are the grammar person in the school as such that is helpful in one way because you can learn from that person but there's a there's a unhelpful element of that which perhaps increases the I think so the yeah. fear element I yeah. think so yeah well, you see in the sort of the literature across the curriculum thing I mean if you look at kind of how language use works mm. um, it's very intimate it's bound up with the context scientists write in different ways um, historians write in different ways in English, you do a different kind of way of writing. So there's a very good case for having kind of literary across the curriculum, generally literary across the curriculum. But when it gets translated out, <laughs> it comes down to kind of very simple rules and it's mm. reduced to kind of things like full stops and capital letters and stuff like that. And actually, it's kind of much richer than that. Mm. Um, and actually, I think kind of ardently defending grammar means really kind of appreciating it for all its kind of richness and, 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 and complexities. And that's part of what we want to kind of see here in the article yeah. is kind of uh, opening up a lot. Mm. So the idea that, you know, you know, grammarians really disagree. Like uh, for me, it doesn't really make much sense to make a distinction between prepositions and subordinators. Mm. But you know, that's what kind of does, and you disagree. Yeah. And there, there are reasons behind it. Um, so it's it's not it's not it's not kind of religious in that sense. But you know, grammarians disagree about how to kind of classify things. Yeah. Um, and even in kind of particular contexts. I mean, I see this a lot because you know, most of my job actually literally goes th is, is going through and coding into Excel sheets every word in a text for its kind of part of speech and relation. And there are cases where I can come across a, something and I can spend an hour on it and I've still no idea. And I have a little kind of file, which is the kind of my WTF file. <laughs> and I still, you know, and that, that's part of being it. I mean, it's just mm. recognizing that there, there are going to be ambiguities and some things won't, won't kind of always be clear. And, and, and actually for our project, for example, we have kind of um, preference rules. So if it's ambiguous, just assign it to this and mark it as ambiguous because you recognise it is. And allowing, making sure teachers know that if you get disagreement in the classroom, that doesn't mean yeah. there's a lack of understanding. In fact, potentially quite the opposite. Or even just kind of saying, well, actually, you, you, you could identify that structure in kind of one or two ways. It, it could yeah. generally be a verb. It could also be an adjective. Mm. But, right, let's, if we assume it's a verb, what's it, what's it kind of doing there? If it's an adjective, what's it kind of doing there? And opening up that kind of discussion so that you're not kind of forcing teachers into this kind of rigid box where they kind of feel that if they kind of step out of it or or you know the students don't or students step out of it they're somehow going to be exposed as kind of people who know nothing and that's, yeah. that's simply I mean that's simply not it's just not the case teachers and teachers do themselves a massive disservice by thinking they 
that unable to do this stuff. Yeah, and I think most, I think just picking up on that word ambiguity, ambiguity for me is something to really celebrate. That's something that's really actually really good fun about mm -hmm. grammar. And the majority of English teachers, I'm sure, would celebrate the notion of ambiguity when it comes to teaching literature. The idea that there isn't just one specific response that is correct as such. Mm. Now, if you swap that notion around to language, suddenly, somehow, it gets switched. And a lot of teachers think that there, that there isn't ambiguity in language, which, of course, there is. So mm. I think my argument is, look, there's ambiguity in language, there's ambiguity in literature. It's open to debate, it's open to personal responses. That's one of the great things about English as a subject and one of the great things that makes English teaching so much fun. Mm. Um, so if you move away from that idea of grammar as correctness and incorrectness and rules and towards fuzziness and ambiguity and choice, then suddenly it becomes much more open and something that's much less to be, to be fearful of and, and to be scared of. Mm. I mean, it's only something we see, I think, at the CPDs. Mm. Um, certainly I saw from your CPDs and the ones we do here. You kind of see teachers coming away and they, they feel quite confident about it. Yeah. And yeah. It's really remarkable, actually, you look at the range of texts that, that my colleagues do and that Ian does. I mean, my favourite one you do is the Mills and Boone type text. Was it called? The something uh, Yeah, yeah, I can't remember. I yeah. love that, because you, you kind of think it's this kind of, you know, well, this is mm. not literature, it's this kind of rubbish thing that people <laughs> dismiss of 399. But he has a really nice that's passage that's where you my, kind of That's from my colleague, Marcello Giovanelli, actually, oh, that text, yeah. Which is a but you, you look at the verbs, and you hear this... The, in, in just this kind of handful of verbs yeah. in kind of a couple of paragraphs of text, this whole world is structured between how the woman is positioned and how the man's positioned. Mm. Oh, funny. And you just look at kind of verbs, and it's you kind of saying it's it's not about being able to just identify the verbs. It's not about being able to definition. It's just kind of saying, let's look at this pattern of text and being mm. able to identify the verbs. It's just about being able to see that pattern and to manipulate that pattern and to do something with it, as mm. if you, as you would use metaphor, as you use simile, as you use any kind of yeah. other thing. And in a weird way, you kind of. I, don't know, I, I told us these grammars, we're stuck at this position where teachers aren't able to get over grammar and this, the curriculum is not set up to help them get over it and really we just kind of need to kind of get over it so that they can actually just kind of use it in a way that kind of makes sense to them yeah. and is actually yeah. kind of really genuinely kind of productive. Would you do that from the off? So uh, some, one of the comebacks to that would be, okay, well we're going to teach them the basics and then they can do the sort of analysis you've just talked about. Would you do, do it concurrently mm. from the start? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a good question. Um, and, and for me, that sometimes I think sometimes there might be a space for explicit grammar teaching. You know, if you, if you want to sit down and teach a class what the structure of a noun phrase is and what the components of a noun phrase is, must that always be done in the context of a literary text? Uh, I'm not sure. I think there's an argument to say, well, no, it can be done in isolation as such. I think the important thing is that, that it must be linked to some form of analytical writing or analytical reading as such, if that's what you want to, want to get out of teaching grammar. So if you want to get out of teaching grammar is an, in, is an increased writing ability or an increased ability to read critically, then of course it has to be linked to literature. Mm. If the purpose of teaching grammar is to, uh, to train the next generation of grammarians, or if the purpose of grammar is merely to teach children explicit things about language, which I think is a really interesting thing in its own right, I think that children should know things about language as a discipline, as a subject with, within its own right anyway. I think that's a really important thing to be aware of. Um, so yeah, I think, I think to me the, the, the debate about um, the balance between decontextualised and contextualised teaching activities remains unresolved. Mm -hmm. I think a good grammar pedagogy put, should possibly consider bits of both, uh, certainly with an emphasis certainly on the contextualised approach. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I think as a teacher, you have to do what, what works best for you, especially if you're a teacher that's underconfident about teaching grammar. Lots of the teachers that I speak to actually talk about how the decontextualised activities only serves to make them even more fearful of it, mm -hmm. because it provides some kind of environment where they're going to be caught out as such, because everybody's focused on the grammar as such, and as soon as people hear the word grammar, they tend to think of right and wrong. Mm. And literature teachers, uh, sorry, English teachers often report feelings of feeling much more comfortable if they're teaching it in context, mm -hmm. because the grammar isn't the sole focus as such, and it and, and then it becomes part of interpretation, it becomes part of the ambiguity that we were talking about earlier. Mm. Yeah, I think it does go back to kind of being very clear as to what the purpose of the grammar is. Mm. Um, and actually, I'm not really sure what the, re the, the research really says about this. And I'm, I'm probably sure, pretty sure we're not at the stage yet where we can really be very clear about what it is. But you make that distinction between, is the, you know, if you're going to do some grammar in a lesson, say, is that because you want to incorporate it into kind of their language use and their writing? Or is it because you want them to kind of be interested in the kind of general structure of language? And I'll, I'll say this, Cal's come home, the formal structure of language is an amazingly fantastic thing and it gives you fundamental insights into how, how just amazing the human mind is. But it's kind of very different things. So it could be, for example, that you know, students can very easily get grammatical features at a very young age. If you're, you know, in terms of making them into kind of explicit grammarians, they can just identify a feature. Mm. But they may not be at a point where they can do anything without their writing. <coughs> not set up doing the writing. In fact, again, some of the stuff that Debbie's kind of showing is that, um, you know, if you if you kind of do our kind of way of teaching it, you do see these kind of, it doesn't look like they're kind of transfer effects in students' writing, but if you were to ask them what they were doing about it, they wouldn't necessarily be able to articulate it. Mm. So this kind of thing that even if they could grasp, and even if they could grasp the concept of it, they wouldn't necessarily be at the developmental stage where they could kind of do anything with it. And having that proper sense where it is. Mm. And again, this is where the kind of curriculum's quite weird, this kind of statutory chronology of when you're supposed to do things. It implies no idea where it's come from actually. Um, that you know, at year two, they're at a stage where they can be taught this structure. I'm like, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I did stuff at university. It's not always that kind of straightforward. Mm. I think at, at the moment it's interesting because obviously the the emphasis on grammar at primary school and the nature of the key stage two tests, where grammar is tested in decontextualized examples, <coughs> means that there's quite a significant knock-on effect at key stage three. So if you think about the transition between key stage two and three. Mm. So a lot of the research that I'm doing at the moment um, involves speaking to teachers about uh, what impact that is having at key stage three. And by far the majority of teachers that I speak to talk about how the beginning of uh, beginning key stage three students have a very rich knowledge of grammatical terms. So they can identify a subordinator, a subordinator or a relative clause or whatever in a piece of fiction or a piece of uh, in any kind of text but they're not then able to apply that knowledge either in critical reading or they're not able to apply that knowledge in creative writing okay um, so decontextualized teaching has led to decontextualized knowledge really um, well they still have knowledge about language they still have knowledge about the structures of a language but in terms of the general goals and aims of what English teaching is nowadays, that isn't perceived as particularly useful mm. because it doesn't perhaps feed into improving reading or improving writing. That's interesting. So what Key Stage 3 teachers are now having to do is to go back to students and say, OK, you've got this knowledge, now let's look at applying it in reading or writing. And that can be construed as a good thing because Key Stage 3 teachers have a base from which to start. So before the the grammar was emphasised before the before the curriculum changed. 
you can imagine a situation. You can imagine a situation where beginning key stage three students had next to no nothing, uh, next to no knowledge about grammar. Mm. So teachers had to teach what noun phrases and subordinate clauses, etc., were, and also do it in terms of applying it in, an, in in reading and writing. But now, actually, you've got quite a good body of knowledge to do things with. But for the students, it's about making that leap between having that knowledge of isolated parts of language and being able to apply it in writing. Yeah, although I think it's also worth saying that kind of potentially that gives kind of primary school teachers a bit of a raw deal. Yeah, and I, I think I, I assume partly that's the principle behind it why it's front loaded at the beginning because the idea that you teach it then and then by the time they get to secondary school they'll they'll be able to do something with it. Mm. But it does sort of you know the kind of development that happens at primary school is really different. The development that happens mm. at secondary school sure. you do different kind of texts, different kinds of things, mm. and yes, at a certain extent you're kind of exploiting more kind of sophisticated features, but. I certainly think primary school teachers have been in a very kind of broad deal. Yeah. And they and their 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 kind of antipathy to grammar is very understandable, both given mm. the kind of lack of a chance to develop their own experience with it and the way the kind of curriculum was kind of forced on them, particularly in terms of the context of the SPAC. Um, they get to sort of make the car but um, the second teachers get to drive it around and have some yeah, fun. Well, they didn't even really get to make the car, really. Yeah. They just kind of get. They encourage it sort of more, just to kind of you know, you give them a diagram of the car and they're supposed to label it, <laughs> which mm. is kind of. Do you want to sum up <coughs> both your research projects briefly in like a, a few sentences? Yeah. Well constructed gramma grammatical sentences. <laughs> well, the pressure's on now. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll go first. I'll let Ian do it because I think actually it's in. Um, it sounds nicer. Um, so um, I'm, I'm affected by a profession what's called corpus linguist. So we um, look at how we, d we do, we kind of build um, databases of, of languages that have actually been used. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of analyze that language trying to find out you know, what those features are doing uh, in particular context. The Growth and Grammar Project is we're building a massive kind of um, database of student writing. So we're collecting writing in um, from all across the curriculum um, from year two, six, nine, and 11. We are going to do a kind of grammatical analysis of that, which is kind of underway. Um, and the point of that analysis is to really understand how students are using features in context, so how it links to the meaning they're creating, um, how it varies according to the context, and how they develop that sense of kind of, um, which for us kind of good grammar, which is about that flexibility and that kind of community resource. Um, because in fact, we actually don't know very much about that at all. Mm -hmm. um, my colleague and I have done a fairly systematic literature review, um, covering about 8,000 studies in various levels of detail. Um, and the research into L1 development, so native speakers and English kind of classroom development, it, it, it's just so minimal. Um, and so the idea is that if we can provide a more systematic map of kind of what that development looks like, that can kind of feed back into the curriculum in a more positive way and help teachers and students kind of make more sense of, of grammar, as, at least as, as it's framed in the curriculum. Mm. And um, <coughs> I kind of spend my time between two places. So um, at UCL, um, <coughs> part of my role involves uh, helping teachers with their own grammatical subject knowledge and also uh, pedagogical principles for teaching grammar. So part of that um, is working on a website that we've designed for teachers called Englicious, which is written by linguists where we um, host hundreds of resources for teaching grammar in the classroom, as well as subject knowledge and extensive glossary, grammar videos, and that's all compatible, compatible with the current version of the national curriculum in terms of what it says about grammar. And that involves uh, that uh, that role also involves training days for teachers where we look at grammatical subject knowledge but we also look at um, teaching ideas for teaching grammar in context, mm -hmm. looking at things such as stylistics for example and, and, and how teachers can, can use aspects of stylistics as a tool for teaching grammar and uh, my, my kind of other role as such is my uh, doctoral research which is at Aston um, and that involves working with teachers first of all thinking about 
their conceptualizations of grammar and what it is, and trying to shift those conceptualizations to a much more positive construal of grammar, and then looking at how that translates into classroom practice. Again, uh, looking at bringing stylistics, and so I'm working very closely with a number of teachers in which we've developed a series of grammar lessons that are informed by uh, recent developments in stylistics that aim to teach grammar in a very meaningful, uh, reader-response-centred, text-driven, contextualised way, and looking at what the potential effects that, that might have on critical reading ability, really. Um, You're going to be inundated with emails now, both of you, because probably yeah. I imagine I should I should have given I should because I, I should give it to Phil actually. I should use Phil's email because he technically <laughs> the principal <laughs> investigator. So I should have. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I'm um, sure I'll get hate. No, we're very happy post. to hear from here to hear from people, though, of course, and uh, very happy to share our work further if people yeah, are interested. I, mean, uh, yeah. I think you know part of we're very much actually part of what we do is about engaging with teachers yeah, as, as yeah. a community uh, and Absolutely. as part of a kind of community. So it's not. It's, it, I, <coughs> I hope. I really hope teachers never feel that it's a case of kind of us talking no, down not to at them. All, not at all. Um, it's yeah. about kind of having kind of an open discussion, um, mm. showing them um, how we think kind of works, how it can kind of build naturally kind of what they do, and having a much more kind of positive framing and having a, a kind of real sense that kind of good grammar is is just part of is a natural part of English, mm. um, and that good grammar, importantly, doesn't neatly fit into this kind of traditional kind of progressive mm. spits that you kind of see, and often actually you s that some of the, the kind of ardent defenders of grammar are defending a kind of um, very limited, very reduced sense of grammar, um, and the kind of teaching is often promoted, we would absolutely say is not conducive to helping students use those features better. Um, it, it's about doing it very, in a very kind of particular way, a richly kind of contextual way that takes them to count the needs of your, your kind of students, takes them to count the kind of writing hand, and even ask that question, is it relevant here? Because mm. it's not necessarily relevant. I mean, you know. Sure. We'll end this podcast on a note that grammar is sometimes irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> Joking, but thank you very much. For I know, I'll say grammar, I, I mean, <laughs> it pretty much dominates my, my, my working kind of home life, but there are certain cases, you know, grammar is not everything. But, but it, is fan it is fantastic fun at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> it's just a kind of substantive part of English. Yeah. But no more so than metaphor, simile, any, any kind of sure. stuff that you want to do as an English teacher. Sure. Thank you very much, guys. Thank, thank you. Thank you. L'audit de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détails sur Audi.fr.